Welcome to the EuroKeo podcast, Pastime Talking and Teaching History. My name is Andreas Solprege. Today's episode is recorded in connection with EuroCleo's upcoming webinar series titled The Road to Totalitarianism. As part of this thematic focus, there will be several webinars there to follow and gain new insights into how we can teach about authoritarianism, totalitarianism and related uh, topics. To speak more about those issues, but also the worrying situation in her homeland of Russia, we have invited Tamara Eidelman to join us today. Now, I'm also just co-hosting as I'm again joined by my excellent colleague, Robin, Robin Gorganese. Welcome. Hi, Andreas. Good to be back. So for those who want to stay up to date with our upcoming webinar series, we invite you to check out our webpage and our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, super excited today to have with us Tamara Eidelman. Tamara, you uh, have a really long biography, so I'll just share a brief uh, part of it. <laughs> yeah, you are, you're a history teacher and an activist, I would say, from, from Russia. You graduated from uh, the uh, Moscow University in 1981 in, in history. Since then, you've, you've obviously taught history and civics in Moscow schools, but you've also been involved in Euroclio activities since the very beginning, actually, uh, in the early 1990s. So I'm, I'm oh sure. yes, from the very very beginning, <laughs> from founding yeah. conferential in Leovard. Wonderful. So you are indeed, a, I think, a familiar person to many of our listeners, but not all. So uh, yeah, in 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 February of this year, actually, it's the first question we're going to ask you. But in February this year, you you moved from Russia to to Portugal, where you continue your own work on a on a really highly popular YouTube channel on, on history and, and, and uh, uh, Russian and world history for a Russian-speaking audience. But first question is really like, you're now talking to us from Lisbon in Portugal. Yeah. What are the reasons for relocating there from Moscow in the first place? Well, unfortunately, the, the same reason that made uh, already thousands and thousands of people moving out of Russia. I can't stay in the country that leads an aggressive war country that is currently occupying part of a neighboring country, I didn't have any direct danger against me, although I couldn't, I, it was clear that as I want to express my thoughts freely, so if I had stayed, I would have been in trouble. But the main problem for me, the main uh, motive for me was that at the moment I'm already retired as a school teacher and my main job is my YouTube channel. And of course, it would have been completely impossible for me to go on like that in Moscow. I have different topics there. Some of them are connected with ancient history or medieval history. But at the same time, we have a lot of how you call that, that you show on YouTube? Clips. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, we have a lot of uh, clips uh, connected with Soviet history of 20th century, about Stalin, about Hitler, and many other quite topics that are quite sensitive at the moment in Russia. Mm -hmm. And another thing we started after the war, now every week, every week we post one lecture on YouTube that is being prepared for a long time, edited, and so on. And also, once a week, I'm streaming just online. Mm -hmm. And these streamings, they are connected with 
actual situation. Right. Yesterday, I streamed a lecture about history of Crimea or something like that. And uh, it's quite important for me. And I can tell you, I'm really proud that every time I got many comments like, you know, we are in Ukraine, we are sitting in bomb shelter and listening to you and your voice gives us help and support. And this is something it is worth working for. And of course, it would have been completely impossible in Russia to say everything I have already said during last three months. So I was on holiday in Greece when it all started. So I just threw away my ticket to Moscow and flew to Lisbon where my daughter lives currently. Well, uh, can I can I just ask also like these clips that you're making now about the actual, the current situation, let's say, so mm-hmm. about Caribbean, for instance. And so you, you obviously have uh, watchers in Ukraine, but clearly also in Russia. What kind of reactions do you get from colleagues back home in Russia, or not not necessarily colleagues, but general society? Well, they are quite different, I can tell you. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I do not have enough time to read all comments. (laughs) So uh, my people who help me, these are mostly my son, my daughter-in-law, my daughter, and uh, well, we have a, a big team already working for me. So they try to show me most, of course, mostly positive reactions, which is very good for me. At the same time, of course, I know that all the time, There are people writing insults and I know they have already a program on YouTube. We comment on Tamara Edelman's historical mistakes. And I can imagine that I can really make mistakes, of course, but I know that they mean something quite different. Uh, Well, yesterday, while I was talking about Crimea, I got a comment Ah, you want to live in European democratic style, but we had already a referendum in Crimea. Isn't it enough for you? Okay, I I told her that uh, nobody uh, in her safe mind wouldn't consider this referendum of 2014 as something democratic. Well, I must admit that I didn't answer in such a pleasant and (laughs) calm way as I'm doing now, uh, which is my weak side, unfortunately. But of course, I have a lot of different comments. Mm -hmm. And uh, people here here in Portugal, big Russian community and a big Ukrainian community, and people often contact me on the streets and say thank you. But uh, there are also completely different. I know that in my own school, I know a boy. Well, I don't know him personally because he studies at the moment. He studies at the moment, but he contacted another teacher. I suppose he knows that she is my friend, and she asked her if she could explain to him why Tamara Natanovna, well, that's me, hates Russia so much. Mm-hmm. That was really hurtful. Yeah. But it's a good point, I think, with, that different people have a different understanding of what history means to them. And uh, like we have heard uh, Putin often enough now use history or misuse history to legitimize the war. In your opinion, how do, how do Russian people view history? What does history mean to them? <laughs> a lot, you know, fortunately and unfortunately. First of all, because 
not only Putin misuses history, but a lot of uh, propaganda people and ideologists, they take some facts, some events from Russian history and turn them just to to make out of them support for their mm. aggression or their well their politics in general history is very popular in russia uh, many people are interested in history and read books on history or maybe popular books or historical novels anyway it's it's popular it's important at the same time i can't think about any important person at least during the last 25 years, maybe even more, who hasn't said something about history. Presidents, prime ministers, they all have their opinion and about history at school. I always wonder, why don't they comment on math at school, on science? Maybe yeah. they just don't know anything about that. And everybody is expert on history. It's so easy to understand. It's so easy to exploit. That's a problem, unfortunately. Unfortunately, there are dozens of silly myths and stereotypes. Some of them are just funny, but, uh, well, like about, I don't know, some ancient cultures who uh, are said to have existed in Russia and so on. But some of them are really dangerous, just like Putin mm. saying now that Russians and Ukrainians have always been one, uh, one nation, one folk. That's idiotic, but he uses that to support his aggression. That's sad. You, you talked about politicians having opinions on, on the teaching of history. And it's often said that teachers, along with some other crucial professions in our society, you think about journalists or judges and so forth, that they are sort of at the front line of defending democracy and sort of the values of our society, right? I want to ask you what very directly, sort of what is the experience of a history teacher in Russia right now today? And as a follow-up, what do you think are the responsibilities of teachers and history teachers in particular in that kind of context that we are seeing now in Russia? Well, unfortunately, history teachers, well, as all teachers, but history teachers especially, are in very controversial, in very problematic situation. Because Russian states want them, of course, to promote anti-democratic ideas, to support aggression. And there is a problem which is much deeper to my mind than just current situation. Because Russian curriculum, has always been based on state history, on history of wars, that a war is something that is considered to be one of the most important thing in Russia. I must say that two projects we had with Euroclio, Rocky Clio project and Mosaic of Culture, they, they are, one of their targets was to change, um, not simply curriculum, but to change, I would say, uh, values, and interests, points of interest in Russian history teaching. And I can say that we had uh, workshops from uh, uh, the very north to the very east, to from Arkhangelsk to Vladivostok, all over Russia. And we met hundreds of very interesting, very uh, crea uh, creative and uh, uh, committed teachers. And I'm sure they, they still are there. And I'm sure that many of them still 
use Euroclear ideas and methods. And it's very important because it's not just about teaching that part of Russian history that we tackled. It's another approach, more open, more democratic, because Russian history teaching is non-democratic from methodical point of view, because it's still just a monologue of a teacher in many situations, and that's all. And then students have to repeat what teachers mm -hmm. said. And I know at the moment, there is a very strong criticism against Russian teachers in Russia. First of all, teachers are found as people responsible for many falsifications during elections because usually elections take place at schools. Right. So oh. one or two teachers are usually present in every commission that deals with uh, results of elections. And also with promoting aggressive ideas at the moment. And it's true, it's partly true, but I always stress in Russia, abroad, and I would like all my colleagues from Euroclean to know that, that not all teachers are like that. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I taught for many years in a very good school in Moscow with good colleagues, with headmasters who uh, supported and well um, protected me. But I know a lot of teachers who are trying to do the same now in Russia, in, must, in much more dangerous situation. And I admire them. Not all of them are like that, but there are, they still are. And their responsibility is very big because they, they talk to younger generation. Younger generation is our hope, our greatest hope. And when at the moment when Putin wants to poison minds of younger generation, that's one of the biggest dangers. It's very good to hear that there are still uh, a lot of teachers in Russia that try to use a different teaching approach. Yes, 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 there are. I'm sure of that. I know yeah. that. Would you say that, um, in your opinion, what can a teacher, a history teacher in particular, do to combat the misuse of history? You know, it's, it's part of a very big problem uh, of teaching and politics. Uh, it's an ethical problem. Can teacher uh, show his or her political views to his students openly? It has al always been a problem for me because I have quite strong political views and my students know about them because many of them read my uh, so, uh, social, uh, social read media me, posts, follow so, me. Yes, yeah. they follow me on Facebook uh, and so on. And they know that. So what should I do? My personal answer was like that. I never hide my ideas, but I'm trying, at least trying, not always successfully, not to impress them on students, which means I, I think I can't go to, into classroom and say, now I will tell you what I think about Putin. It's not my job. But if they ask me any question about Putin, uh, I don't know, about sexual life, about, not my personal, but just in general, <laughs> or about, I don't know, money, or about anything else. That's my duty to answer. That's what I have always done. And I also think that history teachers have another way of 
uh, promoting democratic values. Because if you just say straightforwardly, I think democracy is good and uh, Putin is bad, okay, but that's not what we are meant to be, to my mind. Just what I find extremely important and what have always been my great source of my inspiration is just methods developed by Euroclear. And my collaboration with Euroclear was a very important thing in my development as history teacher. Because I think if you just start telling students how good democracy is, just write down, democracy is a very good thing. <laughs> you just being tyrannical, but despotic, but saying these things. But when you develop critical thinking and when you create a situation in classroom, when they can talk, when they can express their ideas, when you have discussions, and maybe they will not join my uh, opinion. But anyway, discussion is open discussion, free mind. That's what we are here for. And that's what many history teachers still are still doing. Euroclear, with this, this uh, coming autumn, we are going to focus quite a lot about the topic of totalitarianism and the road to totalitarianism, as we call our webinar series that will start yeah, this, this autumn. And we've talked a bit about Russia now. Um, and I, I want to also talk to you a bit more generally about the issue mm. of totalitarianism. First of all, what does totalitarianism mean to you? And since we have been talking about Russia, do you think that Russia today is on the road to totalitarianism or quite not, not quite there yet? Or what, what do you see as, as that situation? And I'm sorry to load you with so many questions, but also how do you approach teaching about totalitarianism? Well, unfortunately, I think that Russia is on the road to totalitarianism. When we say, we, well, there are many people who say already that Russia now is just like Hitler's Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union. It's a little bit too much to my mind, but, but the road is open. That's a very great danger. And at the moment we keep coming and thinking back and thinking about 14 uh, features of fascism that Umberto Eco uh, formulated many years ago. And if you look at them, you see that all of them are present in Russia now. So maybe it's not totalitarian state yet. I hope it won't be like that, but that Russia can be called authoritarian state, fascist state, that's unfortunately some, something we have to admit. Mm -hmm. And as for teaching, I always used um, civics as, uh, let's say, basis for, for the teaching of history of 20th century. And uh, in a curriculum of civic, civics, we have, uh, we have to teach um, political regimes. And so democratic regimes and totalitarians also. So we studied that in theory. And I always asked my students to read 1984 by George Orwell. And also there is a Russian anti-utopia by Evgeny Zamyatin that is called, I don't know how it's translated, us or we. We read both of them and we discussed them. 
and we compared them. Well, Orwell wrote just teaching material because you can see all features of the totalitarian state in his novel. So we compared 1984 with uh, textbook. <laughs> and, uh, and then, so, so theoretically, but then when we started Stalin time or Hitler in, in history class, I could already refer to Orwell, and you could always see all these uh, links. And is it, this is very, to me, it seems very important. Well, first of all, because I love this book. I know that some of my students find it depressing and threatening. So do I. But anyway, it's important to read it. And what is also important for me, it's not simply about totalitarian state. It's about people there. It's about resistance and about capitulation. It's about individuals and the state. It's something, it's a place, this book, it's a point, starting point for many discussions and reflections, which I have always used. I remember reading uh, Animal Farm in school, and uh, it stuck with me quite, quite severely. And I think one one very important point is also that it's not happening all at once. It's a very it's a slow and steady process with many red flags along the way. Yeah, that's it. So uh, Tamara, you you also on your YouTube channel, we we talked a bit about it before. You tackle some big issues in Russian and world history, but you also look at some particular personalities, let's say, and one of the, your, <laughs> lot, your latest video is about Hitler, Adolf Hitler. And we touched also on that briefly and, and how it's difficult to compare historical experiences of totalitarianism. And it's not quite, you know, you, you wouldn't want to describe Russia as today as the same as during Stalin or something like that. But if, if we were to venture down this route and, and sort of compare authoritarian experiences, what does Putin's Russia today resemble most to you? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's really complicated because just you just want to start talking about Hitler or Stalin. I think that's not exactly like that. Of course, we can always find some... Uh, common points. I would maybe compare him with Mussolini's Italy at the moment, uh, with all this cult of history. We have a glorious, we have glorious past behind us, and now we'll go further with all these anti-bourgeois rhetoric, rhetorics, and so on. At the same time, maybe I'm being too engaged at the moment, but. To my mind, well, both Mussolini and Hitler, terrible criminals and so on, but they, they were strong personalities, perverted and evil. And I, I just can't see any strength in Putin. Maybe it's my mistake and maybe I'm being too angry with him, but he seems to me such a nothing and non-entity. I just, when I asked to compare him with any great tyrants of the past, I can't because they were tyrants, but they were important, strong, evil. He's just, uh, I feel disgusted. That's my mistake, I know. 
talk about Hitler and Mussolini, we also think about ideologies, right? Is there is there any ideology to Putin's Russia? Well, yes, yes. And, you know, for many years, Russian authorities have tried, well, after Soviet Union collapse, Russian authorities have tried to formulate Russian idea, Russian ideology, and this work went really bad. But recent years, it seems that they have found something. What Putin is doing now, sometimes openly, sometimes I can't even understand if it's consciously, maybe just based on intuition, but he is building his ideology or, or people around him, I don't know. They are building ideology based on late Stalin's years. That's a very important thing because Stalin ideology after the Second World War was quite different from the 30s. 30s were a terrible decade with all this blood and peasants uh, deported and uh, all these open processes, uh, open trials, terrible. But after the war, he started building Soviet Union in a on a completely different base as Russian empire. For the first time, Stalin, after the end of the war, he said that Russian people is the greatest people in the Soviet Union. So Russians were uh, understood as big brothers of all others in Soviet Union. And Stalin uh, was idolized and made a kind of God. And it was a recreation of Russian empire. Also was different in different parts. But at the end of 19th century, Russian empire became very orthodox, very Russian, suppressing all nationalities. Stalin referred to that time. Now Putin, he builds this connection with late Stalin and with late Russian empire. And that's a terrible way because empires can be quite different, but that's the worst model of empire. That's what he's building. And many people like it. Uh, yeah, we talked about your 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 work on your YouTube channel, talking about, uh, yeah, also authoritarian figures, dic dictatorships, and, and what you just explained now about ideology in, in today's Russia. But again, like going back to the experience of authoritarianism and, and a totalitarian regime, I wanted to ask you, because on a more personal note, you also grew up in a country that was totalitarian in the Soviet Union. And also tying it back to history education, how was history education like when you were growing up in the Soviet Union? Well, yeah. <laughs> it was it was boring, I would say. That's the main thing also, the, that's my main, that's the weakest part of today's education also, because when education is boring, that's terrible. And of course, when I went to school, we didn't have any this modern uh, ideas, just uh, our teachers, our teachers spoke and we took notes and then we had to repeat them. And uh, of course, uh, we were taught a lot of things that are not said today about Soviet Union, about progressive Bolshevik uh, politics and so on. Now these things are gone. But the main idea that it was also state history, it was also all about state, not about people, that was more or less the same. 
at the same time, unfortunately, well, I went to school in Brezhnev times. That was, maybe it was still a totalitarian state, but a lazy one, because we didn't have really terrible control. And uh, you could find your small private place where you could live without great intervention of state. And at school also, we were taught some things about a party and Bolsheviks. I don't think our teachers believed that. Neither they did, nor us. Well, we played such strange game. They told us things they didn't believe, and we seemed, uh, we, we made it look as if we believed them. I remember we had a girl in my class who really was very pro-communist and, well, can't say fanatic, but very active. And everybody looked at her if she was crazy. Maybe she really was, I don't know. But it seemed, she was funny, strange. And uh, now all this propaganda is much more active and much more, well, maybe not overwhelming. That's why I think that it's the way to totalitarian state, because totalitarian state wants to control everything. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to leave you alone. You have to participate. You have to say something about how we are helping Ukraine or something like that. Also something that I find very, very uh, troubling in today's, not only education, but also in education. Soviet propaganda, of course, was false, biased, it's clear. But at least in time when I grew up, it was based on good ideas. They were not real. For example, we have been always taught about a friendship between all people in Soviet Union. You could always see pictures of people in different ethnic dresses, costumes, uh, holding hands, and we uh, learn songs of different parts of Soviet Union and so on. That was false because in reality, reality was quite different. But at least people were used to to think about that. And now propaganda is based on hate. You are supposed to hate these terrible Ukrainian nations where everybody is a Nazi. And what, what do you have to do with Nazi? Of course, fight against them. And if you kill a Nazi, well, that's maybe not so good, but that's logical. That's what we did during the Second World War. And it's terrible, this strong mobilization and hate. That's what makes it quite different from 70s and 80s. Yes, we, we talked a lot about uh, the comparisons we made to other totalitarian states were quite far back in history. And uh, I think today there's one major difference in terms of propaganda, which is the internet. Would you say that the internet in, in Russia is being used as a, as a weapon for propaganda? Well, that's also, you know, when the internet just started, we in Euroclio, I remember we had uh, General, Euroclio General Assembly in Helsinki, and the conference was all about using internet. And people kept saying that it, it's so different from everything that was before. Well, yes, it is. But at the same, I remember, I can't remember the name of this person who made a presentation 
It was in 1980 or something like that. It was just everything was so new to us. And he made presentation. He showed, well, if you start, if our students start looking for information about, I don't remember, maybe it was about Zimbabwe, and they print Robert Mugabe, and they immediately find sites explaining that this is such a wonderful leader, that he leads his country toward progress and democracy and so on. And only maybe the 10th link will be about Robert Mugabe as a dictator, criminal to my mind and so on. So what I want to say that using internet, it's again, use of information, the same thing that was with books, but only now we have more, uh, biggest amount of information, but it's still, you have to analyze it. You have to compare sources. That's what we teach, history teachers have to teach them. Mm -hmm. And uh, now inter internet in Russia, you, you have problems with using some sites, but of course VPN is everywhere and you can use that. And people, people who want, they can get anything they want. But the greatest problem is you have to find your way in this ocean of information. And of course, when it's war, so all sides use bias and all sides use propaganda. It's very difficult. All of us here, we want to believe Alexei Aristovich when he tells us how Ukrainian army is winning. If it's really so, or if he just wants us to believe that, I don't know. But as for Russian propaganda is so overwhelming, but so you have to, to find your way. As a question to that, actually, I, I, I was wondering because there's also, there's an impression I think in, in, in the West of Europe, at least, I think that, oh, in Russia, they people only have access to the state media and they're only seeing this propaganda and so forth and so on. But that's not entirely true either, of course. I, I, I saw there's a fantastic interview with yourself on a very popular Russian YouTube channel. And I, I was surprised to see that there's... I don't know how many 12 million views or something on, yeah, on something this. something like that. Yeah. And, and and this this channel in itself is massively popular. So there are ways for people people are able to access all kinds of information also because of the internet, right? And you you are one of these people that also present a very alternative viewpoint to that of the Kremlin, right? Yes, it's possible. Uh, you have some complications, but as for YouTube, you still can use that. With uh, people have problems with social media uh, in uh, Russia, but again, there are ways. It's already, for example, for people of my age, it's already a little bit complicated to use all this VPN to install these programs. But people learn. If you want to, you can learn. On YouTube, you can find a lot of channels with completely different ideas. Mm -hmm. And they are also massive. Mm -hmm. We talked about this road to totalitarianism and we mentioned that there are maybe sometimes there are many red flags along the way. And sometimes we may miss them. We may not mm -hmm. realize. And I'm asking also because it's, I think it's the fact that we are also seeing quite serious threats 
towards democratic societies elsewhere. It's not just in Russia. This is, uh, to some extent, a global um, phenomenon that is happening. Speaking of these red flags, when at what point did you start to think my country is really going down that path? And what was the what was the flag that alerted you to it? You know, uh, when we had uh, our first project with Euroclear, that was from 1997 to 2001, we had four years project. And at the end of this project, we started discussing changes. Yoke kept saying that she sees things changing and going a bad way. I was very optimistic at that moment. Although at our final um, event, we made uh, short shows and uh, the group where I was, we presented our vision of, I just, it was 2000 or 2001, and we presented how we see people of Euroclear in you know, maybe 20 years. And um, in our show, I was arrested and shouting some slogans <laughs> and brought to KGB for interrogation. And um, our international friends were also arrested and so on. But at that moment, it seemed, uh, well, maybe one of possible ways, but not really a danger. I remember in, in the year 2000, the 26th of March, I was in Lisbon at the Euroclear General Assembly. That was the day of um, elections in Russia. It was on Sunday. So Saturday we had final dinner at Euroclear. And in spite of that, early in the morning on Sunday, I woke up and I walked to Russian embassy to vote against Putin. That was the first time when Putin was elected. Because for me, the idea that somebody from secret services wants to be a president, that was already impossible. Mm. But at first, it seemed not so terrible. In the year 2003, when Mikhail Khodorkovsky was arrested, uh, so that was already a very unpleasant sign. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it was uh, Georgia and then, and then Ukraine. 2008, 2014. Mm -hmm. But may, there were also many others, but these were just showing where we're going. What hopes or fears do you have for the future of Russian democracy now? How does an authoritarian regime end? What are your expectations? Uh, <laughs> well, I hope that it will end when I'm still alive. I hope that I will be able to come back to Russia. I'm not sure that it will be like that, but I really hope. And it's not only because I would, of course, I want to return to Russia and go on with my life. But at the same time, I would like to participate in rebuilding of Russia, in rebuilding of Russian education, which is very important to take all this aggressive foundation out of it. And I understand that if it happens, I hope it happens, but if it happens, it will be a very, very difficult way of rebuilding democracy because there is already, unfortunately, a terrible gap, no break, I don't know, abyss between Russia and Ukraine and a lot of hate. And people who are now fighting 
in Ukraine. They will come home with terrible stress. And we speak about Vietnam syndrome, Afghan syndrome. They will have Ukrainian syndrome. And they will live among us. And families of those who are dying now and those who support Putin. That's the biggest threat. Putin will go. I hope he will go soon. At the moment, the only way he can, there are two ways. Either he just dies or some people from his entourage will get away with him. Mm -hmm. I, unfortunately, I don't see any other ways. But the most important thing, what will happen after that? Mm -hmm. Who will come after him? Right. If, we, if we are ready to change something, we'll see. Tamara, thank you so much. We, we very much hope that you indeed can return to Russia and continue your work from there, also being our EuroClio ambassador in Russia. <laughs> and I think to end on a, on a positive note, perhaps, let's do a similar exercise as, as you did with your EuroClio friends back in a long time ago in the uh, late 90s, yeah. where we imagine a future. I, I would like to imagine a future where if you are returning to Russia and you are indeed the new minister for education in Russia. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much and, for, for your and time. Please, Liz. please send my love to all my EuroClear colleagues, my friends. I hope they remember me. I always remember that. We will. We Thank will. you. Thank you. Thank you Thank very you. much.